Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Snooth Editor-in-Chief Gregory Del Piat stops by today to tell us about what's going on online. Uh, Gregory Del Piat's on the show today from Snooth Media. Thanks for taking the time. Well, thanks, Levy. Always a pleasure to chat with you. What are you up to these days at Snooth? Oh, just uh, we're busy. I mean, a lot of been doing a lot of travel, obviously a lot of uh, creative stuff, trying to get new writers uh, to contribute to the site, we're actually paying people to write. Oh, you are? Wine. Yeah. Oh, wow. And not well, but we're paying them. You could pay me for some of the things I did already if you oh, want to sure. do like a Ret- retroactive Retroactively, yeah. we'll work on that. I'll, I'll investigate the possibility <laughs> of that happening. Um, and then really just planning for we're rolling out various new initiatives and it's a lot of a lot of planning, a lot of writing, a lot of traveling. So I guess probably a lot of people don't know what Snooth is, although it gets a lot of users. Uh, wh- how would you tell us what it is? Uh, it's difficult to describe, really, because it's a different thing for different people. It's definitely a price comparison shopping site. You can go on there. You can find prices. That is the 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 founding kernel of the site. That's what it started out as. Um, so you could find out retail pricing for retail an item. pricing. At uh, I think we have. Prices from 12,000 stores around the world. <clears throat> the big problem, of course, is that each store lists the wine in a different way. So right. when Snooth started and was a small, relatively focused comparative shopping website, it was kind of easy because you have three listings per wine. You could figure out how to merge them. But now if you have a 1,000 different listings with some people listing Mondavi Reserve as Mondavi Reserve, Robert Mondavi Reserve, Robert Mondavi res things like that it got out of hand and that became a really big project that we didn't realize was going to be an ongoing project that continues to be the core of the site um the the one of the benefits of focusing on deduping all that content is we're creating a database now we really have it's it's difficult because it's tens of thousands of wines but we're creating um certified listings that we merge other wines into so at some point in the next couple of years we'll have a pretty accurate database of the probably the the 35,000 most common wines sold around the world um and that's going to be a valuable resource it'll have pictures of the bottles maybe label shots if they're registered in the u.s um and then there's the editorial side to it. Uh, and that's mostly your steez, right? I yeah, mean, that's what you do. That's what I do. Pretty yeah. much that's what I do. I and mean, when did you come on board? In 
August of 08, so four years ago. And, and Snooth had already existed before. Yes, then, yes, like it started in. Well, the idea, the the page, the first page went up, I think, uh, February or so of 07, and then the site went live, an interactive site went live in July of 07. No, I I think early on there was some criticism about, like, you would link onto a Snooth thing, it would come up in a Google search, and you would click on it, and then there wouldn't be a lot of information There'd be nothing. There. So I can tell you, it was kind of like a placeholder thing. Yes. Well, that's that's that, again, is one of the problems in growing the site because every time we got a wine from a retailer's feed we would create a page for it mm -hmm. and then there were a lot of duplicate pages got it so a lot of those pages ended up being completely blank after they went out of stock at the retailer oh because no other person would come back on with that right. same spelling exactly so that's that's one of the the big hurdles that we've overcome and I, I, it was frustrating for me uh, because part of my job was filling out some of those pages. Yeah. And I would do Google searches for some of the wines. And, you know, absentmindedly, you just click on the first um, search result. And I'd be clicking on the page I was trying to to fill in. And it was terrible. It was a terrible user experience. Uh, we took down over a million pages that were like that last year. A million. Over a million. There were about, uh, I don't remember exactly, five and a half million pages. And we've paired them back to about, we, we took down over a million, maybe a million, million and a half. And then we've been deduping wines into less than, fewer than a million pages. So we definitely have, have narrowed the number of, of thin pages. We call them thin pages, pages with a little bit of content. And at the same time, we're pushing pages for the same wine together so you might get a wine review from the winemaker on one page a wine review from a consumer on another a couple of prices on another so i think the, the pages are definitely more useful today and that was that was one of the projects that i set out to try to implement a strategy obviously it was going to be long term with so many pages but implement a strategy that would bring us to where we are today i mean i'm pretty happy after four years where we are today in that aspect and what else are you up to? I noticed recently you brought on wine mentors talking about different uh, regions of the world and outside writers. Because I feel like a lot of the content was driven uh, by yourself for, for a couple of years there. For three years, yeah. And and so how has that worked out? And, and what who are these people and what are they up to? Um, they they really run the gamut from we have Christy Canterbury, Master of Wine, as a, a mentor. And we also have uh, wine bloggers in small regions in Portugal who are probably – the most expert the most expert about those regions you know there are there are a lot of people on the ground in small areas that don't get a lot of coverage and really what we're trying to do is just have somebody on the site who who can answer any question uh you know i'm very good about answering your typical questions how how many years can i age this bottle what temperature should i serve it at and i've got my regions of expertise that i feel comfortable answering questions about but I don't know everything. It's impossible to know everything. I don't want to know everything. Um, so we, we, we started this mentor program and really the mentors are there to at, to answer people's questions. And it's, it's an interesting program because it has uh, masters of wine who can answer really high level questions. But we also have people involved in the program who can answer basic level questions with basic level responses. Oh, because okay. it's not always easy. It's difficult. I mean, especially when you get to the, to the high level of expertise, sometimes you don't, when you get a very basic question, you read a lot more into it. Yeah. People want a simple answer in, in plain English. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're trying to build, um, it's a the wine economy, stupid. Yes, like exactly. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> so we're trying to build a site where everybody's answers are treated seriously, 
by somebody and answered seriously. And there's a forum component too, right? Where people can kind of post on what they've been drinking or a question about this or that in terms of wine. Absolutely. Is, and is that, that we're actually going to be integrating the mentor program into the forums because we, we have the site. You know, I don't know a lot about uh, computer programming and building websites. I, mean, I know a lot more today than I did four years ago. But it's really interesting how when you're bootstrapping it, you tend to build sort of distinct modules for the site that really don't integrate that well. You know, it's a, a lot of the work that was done was done to solve a problem but without foresight into how it, how it would work in the future, how it would work down the road. So one of the things we do have on the site is a question and answer column. You can ask a question, somebody in theory could answer it, but you would never never be able to find it again because there's no index. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be one of the things that we're integrating into the forum, um, and that's going to be specifically for the mentors. You'll be able to ask, ask a mentor a question. And I think one of the cool things is it's going to be, uh, there are a lot of question and answer forums out there, and it's going to be, you'll have a list of answers. So you'll have disparate answers from the various mentors to your questions, and that'll be uh, woven into the forum as well. And let's talk a little bit about your background before you got involved with Snooth. Um, you got started with wine fairly early. You kind of grew up in northern Italy, is that right? I spent my summers in northern Italy. I spent my summers drinking wine and eating. I have memories that probably go back to somewhere between five and seven years old. I loved wine. I just, I loved wine and I loved cheese. And I can remember that from a very early age. And when I was 10 years old is probably when I started to drink unadulterated wine before that it was wine mixed with water. There were Northern Italian reds. There were probably 10% alcohol and they just secured a lifelong passion at a very early age. And I actually started collecting wine, cellaring wine at 10. Wow. And I remember uh, you told me once that one of the ways you kind of built your own cellar was that somebody needed help organizing theirs, and you kind of went in. And oh, that's a crazy story. George in Watermill, New York, um, bless his soul, he had a shop, um, Watermill being a, a, a Hamptons a resort town, not so much back then, but it was a summer community. And he had a shop that closed probably, I don't know the exact dates, but probably pretty much from thanksgiving until easter probably yeah and he used to go to california with an international harvester truck and a u-haul and he would lo load up the truck and drive it back to new york and unload these wines that are fairly well known today and you know some of the gems of california but back then this is, this is going back to the mid 80s because i remember you had like old inglenook old inglenook like for sure but in the mid 80s people just wanted chablis and and i don't know what else he sold i don't remember what else he sold but i remember he he, he commented that he couldn't sell these wines he had a wall full of them in the shop um and I went in a couple of times, and I don't remember what bottle of wine it was, but I asked him if he had another. Uh, and he sort of laughed and said, oh, I've got, I probably have a case in the basement, but you can't have it. And I said, why, why can't I have it? And he said, you can't get to it. So I said, well, can, can I look? Yeah. And he said, sure, go down and look. Take a look. Don't touch anything. And basically what he had done in a rectangular basement that was almost empty was just offloaded the wines every year, took a case, put it on display, and never sold anything. So he just had a massive mountain of moldering cardboard boxes in the basement filled with California wines from the uh, early, the early 50s, if not the late 40s, right through the late 70s. And I made a deal with him that I would go through and help clean it up. And for every hour that I worked, I got a bo any bottle I wanted for five bucks with very few exceptions. Wow. 
So I, I don't remember. I, I think that first year I worked about 120 hours. So I, I probably took in about uh, 10 cases of gems. And then they were, you know, like, like you mentioned, they were old Ingle looks. There were all sorts of, of oddities in there. Producers who made wine for one vintage. Um, it was, uh, it was a fantastic experience that really turned me on to California wine, to the great California wine at an early age as well. How do you think California wine has changed? I mean, you're probably one of the few people that could really speak to the progression of, hey, 40s, 50s, 60s. I don't think there was much change through the late 70s. Those, the wines were pretty consistent. And I don't know the, the weather in a lot of the vintages in the 50s and the 60s. Certainly from the mid-70s on, I'm familiar with the weather patterns. The wines were pretty much consistent. They got progressively a little bit bigger. Um, uh there are probably a couple of reasons for that. They never got too big. That's not entirely true. Some producers started to, to push things. But then in the in the probably the early eighties is when everything started to go to shit because I can remember the food wine movement that was sort of a backlash to some of the, the monsters that were made in the late seventies and it, it's obvious, especially in hindsight, that <clears throat> acidification became a, a huge crutch in the 80s because a lot of those wines just have turned into to sour crap with age when they should be beautiful today. And today the wines, uh, you know, it's actually interesting because I was just sort of in, in the Snooth Forum posted something on the California Cabernets that I still taste today hoping to buy them. Uh, I buy some. I buy more today than a couple of years ago because I've become more aware of some of the smaller producers who are still doing good things. But the wines in general today and since the mid-90s at least – don't resemble the wines that were made prior. They're just too sweet, too thick, too rich, too over-oaked, too manipulated. Um, people love them. So more power to them, you know, I guess. They're, they're also like, too expensive for – I wouldn't buy them. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's interesting in a way because it, it uh, breeds diversity, and I'm all for diversity. But it's sad in a way as well because and there are a lot of great vineyards there that produce great – ageable wines in the past that are producing fruit bombs today that uh, that won't leave a legacy. How about your history with northern Italian wines? Are, are there certain wines there that you think um, have kept true to what they were originally? Oh, there are a lot, I think. Um, Barolo, for example, there are at least, uh, at least maybe at the most a dozen producers, around a dozen producers who are making wines that, again, they're different than they were 20 years ago. They're, they're certainly cleaner. Um, there's a lot more attention to hygiene in the region, especially the quality and cleanliness of barrels used to age. The wines are aged in barrel a little less, but the, the, the style of the wine, the ageability, the complexity they develop with, with uh, time um, resembles the, the wines made 20 or 30 years ago. And I think once you get out of a Piedmont, because Piedmont's a little unusual in that the wines sell for a fair amount of money. Yeah. They're, they're not inexpensive. So producers had the ability to do stupid things like buy roto-fermenters and buy lots of new barrique and play around. And, you know, again, diversity. Some of those wines are beautiful. Some I can't drink if you paid me. But if you get out of there and you go to Trentino or the Veneto, there's still a lot of producers who whose clientele never changed. The demands for the wines never changed. The, the price of the wine never changed, so the wine never changed. There was no incentive to change. You weren't going to get more money if you spent more money. So there are lots of – I think there are lots of little gems 
hidden away, low production, obscure grapes where you can, you can find fantastic wines for 30, 40 bucks that, that, uh, are just so typical of, of where they come from that that's one of the things that really turns me on typicity. So what are some of the hallmarks of, say, a wine from, from Trentino? Uh, Trentino, well, Teraldigo is the number, the most important red grape there. Um, they're high acid, low tannin, relatively speaking, minerally rich fruit sort of wines. They're, they're mountain wines, and I know that means it can mean different things in different places. Napa mountain wines are very different than Valdostan mountain wines, but they still share a sort of precarious balance, all of them. They're not, they, they, they are not rich. They're, they tend to not be hedonistic. They tend to reward your attention, but you have to pay attention to be rewarded. They're not facile wines for the most part. In terms of the market for Toronto, it seems like the only producer that's really broken through is Foradori. Is there a world behind Foradori of other producers that you would recommend to people? There are, I mean, there are a handful of producers who are doing really good things. There are about 30 producers in total. Um, some make, I'm going to say commercial wines, but they're different commercial wines than what we would think of as California commercial wines. They're mm -hmm. not big brands. They're commercial in the sense that that's what people in the neighborhood want. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And those are, those are, Toraldigo will give you a heavy crop. So those people are cropping heavy, making light. They're beautiful wines. They're wines that people buy in five gallon refillable bottles and they drink them for lunch and dinner and they cost a euro 50, two euros a bottle, a liter. Um, and those are, th those are in a way the gems, um, of the region. There are people like Zenny. Zenny makes a very good Toraldigo, gets exported here to the U.S. Uh, there, there are a handful of other producers who do good things. Baron de Cless makes a very traditional Toraldigo that may not be pristine and perfect, but it sort of captures what Toraldigo was in the 70s. Um, um, obviously, there are other producers who are uh, escaping my, my memory right now. Um, but those are all sort of the high end. And Foradori makes a very good, I don't think it's the best, High-end Dorigati makes uh, a high-end super Teraldigo called Diedri. Um, that's just, I think, spectacular, very expressive of sight. Again, that's part of the typicity thing that, that turns me on. But the, the real thing, the real gems in a way are if we could get some of those $12 bottles here into the U.S. and show people what people drink daily in Europe because wine is – a daily thing in Europe. And here wine is still sort of seen as either a special occasion thing or a glass before dinner, but people should be opening bottles and, and enjoying wine with dinner before, with, and after dinner. Are we seeing uh, the disappearance of that traditional culture as, as the wine market, at least uh, in the export field really gets so centered on uh, expensive bottles and super this and celebratory that and big money items. Are we seeing the disappearance of the local leader culture where people just open up wine that's maybe simple but maybe typical, as you were saying? It's interesting. I, I, I can't speak in general terms. I can speak about Trentino, where that was on the verge of disappearing a decade ago with the influx of cheap Argentine and Chilean wine. But culturally in Trentino, people have realize that that is something that's really important to to the, their society this is a level of of farmer who for whatever reason is unable to make a, a wine that's going to sell for more money maybe it's a volume consideration as vineyards are too small or um and they there's definitely a sense that they want to preserve that because people have figured out 
I think that the, the, the fighting varietal kind of wines have changed a lot and become very homogenous. And while 10 years ago. So a, a Merlot is a Merlot is a Merlot. And a Carmenere is a Merlot and a Cabernet is a Merlot. And oh, I see. So you're saying in between the varietals. I think so. That you're not seeing a difference that might indicate why you started labeling them by varietal in the I, first place. I think that that's, that's somewhat the case. Certainly between varietals, but I, Carmenere was a big thing in Italy 10 years ago. It was cheap. I love Carmenere. It was Carmenere 10 years ago. It was herbaceous and it was relatively high acid, low time. It was, you know, it was a, it was a Cabernet Francish weight Cabernet Sauvignon imposter that people liked. And I, I love that. But today you talk to people and at least the people in Trentino, the number one comment is if you ask, why aren't you buying those wines anymore? They're too sweet. They're too sweet. They're too sweet. And does that speak to the traditional Italian palate of bitterness? I, I think so. Bitter and, and high acid. And also, I think it's just, uh, you know, Italians like to drink a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it gets a little cloying. It gets too cloying. I mean, I I, I can definitely dig a, a, a red table wine with residual sugar for a glass, half a glass, a great big zin with barbecue. There's a place for it. But that that regular table wine... I mean, you want it to cleanse your mouth. You, it's 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 cloying, annoying, and it just ends up really being kind of sickly and disgusting if you drink a bottle or you know drink half a bottle every day after a couple of days. It's not something you want to keep on doing. So one of the things I've noticed trying to sell more high ticket items uh, from Italy, like Barolo, is that sometimes the uh, perception of what the wine will be is different than the reality, and the, and the guests sometimes find the wine a little too acidic or a little too tannic. Um, what would be some of the ways that someone opening a bottle of that wine could still turn people on to them? Are, is there certain foods that would bring them out? Is there certain ways you can handle them? Well, certainly decanting. Nebbiolo, I think, is one grape that benefits from decanting more than almost any other because especially with an aged bottle of wine, Often when you pop the cork, you take a glass, they're pretty unforgiving, unpleasant, high acid, just shrill. They tend to be shrill examples of wine, but you give them some air, they soften up, the fruit pops out. And I think it's really interesting that the impression of fruitiness can counterbalance tannin and acid just as well as the sweetness of fruitiness. You don't need the residual sugar if you've got beautiful fruit flavors. I think it tricks the brain into thinking that the wine is a little sweeter and that balances out the acidity. And then fat. I mean, you have, uh, I think that one of the main reasons that Italians have high acid wines is that they tend to have either high acid or fatty meals. Mm-hmm. And fat. High acid counters high acid, so Barbera and, and red sauce is a classic combination. But also, also Buco and Nebbiolo is a classic combination. It's got the, the fat, it's got the richness from the dissolved gelatinous connective tissue. So you need to, you need to figure out uh, textural balance in the mouth. I, I think texture is one of the big overlooked discussions in wine. Um, we have it, we, we sort of live in this high-end wine world, but most people will give you a blank stare if you start talking about the texture. You travel to this area quite frequently in the north, but also specifically in the Piemonte, which might be the, the wine that people would see most often if they're in their local supermarket or wine store. Um, if there were producers that stand out for you, who would they be and why? In Piemonte? Yeah. Oh, there are definitely producers that stand out. I mean, uh, there's, like I said, there are about 12, but they're the, the, the ones that really stand out f- for various reasons. Berlotto stands out number one. Mm-hmm. 
distinctive wines, elegant, beautiful Burgundian sort of Nebbiolo that are priced ridiculously well, 40 to 55 bucks for wines that will age effortlessly for 20 years. And that goes back to texture. They tend to be silky Barolos. They tend to have plenty of acidity. Um, it's probably the wine I buy the most of in a way because of the, the pricing. Because of the values. Yeah, the values there. Um, is that somewhat in terms of where it's from? I mean, I feel like it's in a little bit of a it's less... from Verduno. Well, some of the wine. He has a Canubi. It's interesting. The Canubi, which is from Barolo, yeah. uh, uh, sells for more than his Monvillero, which is from Verduno. Um, I like the wines equally. I think the Monvillero is an iconic Barolo and should be looked at sort of... I mean, it's difficult to say, oh, it should be looked at like like Montfortino and Jacosa Red Labels, but it's so distinctive and it's so of its place and it's so beautifully balanced that I think it it should. So I think, yeah, you have an absolute point there. The Canubi's $15 more a bottle. That's you know, 30% more a bottle. So being from Verduno, being from someplace not famous is definitely a handicap. Because it's not the Lamora, it's not the Castagnoli Filetto that maybe some other sure. people, consumers are more familiar with. Are there other producers that kind of are speaking to you, especially strongly right now, that maybe tie in that value element? Um, well, there's Guido Poro, which mm -hmm. I know that I've had, we've had, uh, we've tasted it together. Yeah. We have a different uh, uh, point of view no, on I it. I like the wines. The wines are good. The wines are thirty bucks a bottle, give or take. I think that uh, for a value proposition, if somebody wants to to learn about Barolo, it's the best thirty dollars. There, there are more than a handful of $30 bottles out there, and I think that's the best $30 bottle. There are two single vineyards. <clears throat> Actually, it's the same vineyard, but sort of the north, the, the higher and lower elevations. Uh, I like his wines very much. Odero. Odero is an interesting proposition because they have different importers for the east and west coast, priced very differently. Is that true? I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, I actually buy my Odero on the west coast and have it shipped here, and it's significantly less expensive. Oh, insider tip. Yes, insider tip. Uh, Odero makes beautiful wines. Their prices have been edging up. Um, who else? Uh, Brovia, they're not, they're not cheap. I mean, they're not expensive. They're in the 70, probably the 65 to $80 range for single vineyards. I don't know anybody who's making better wine today in Piedmont than Alex Sanchez at Brovia. I, I adore those wines. Having said that, I don't know anybody who's making, nobody's making a better Barolo than Mauro Mascarello's Mon Privato, which for a hundred bucks is it's not inexpensive, but it's for me that's absolutely world class wine that is that is got a the most consistent track record possibly. They're just spectacular wines, and hundred bucks actually is my new price limit. I used to comfortably spend more, um, but I've realized that I, I don't have to. I don't want to. The the extra smidgen of enjoyment is usually not worth the extra 20 or 30 percent would so, that be true if you were buying in other areas i mean is that really uh an italy thing i mean say you bought napa valley wine i, I spend less than 100 bucks you do and you find a value that you're looking for yeah i mean yeah. I, you i think napa is 70 bucks there's there there's one exception ridge montebello there's always an exception montebello is more than 100 bucks or right around 100 bucks and again I, I don't know of anybody who makes a better cabernet in california than ridge montebello there are many people who make wines that are close mm -hmm. but that to me is a benchmark with a 30 40 year track record of aging spectacularly well you know i would put that against any cabernet based wine made in the world but there are a lot of producers um Keenan, Ritchie Creek, Mount Eden, that are all in the 
40 to 55 $60 range. I don't drink a lot of California Cabernet, which is actually not true. I do drink a lot, but what I drink tends to be from the 70s and the 80s. Sure. And they're dwindling stocks, and we discuss that wines are different. And I really like them. I mean, at the right time, when I have a steak off the grill, it's when it's the right wine to have. Um, so I, I buy a little, but not a lot. In terms of the American consumer, just the regular guy on the street, is there uh, an understanding of some of the what the flavor profile is going to be from northern Italy um, or not? Because sometimes I feel like the uh, the vintage charts are a little skewed towards maybe those more California-style flavors of fruit. Or Is that true? Or? I think that's true. Vintage charts are, are laughable, I think. For Piemonte. For, and in general, the whole, I mean, it's easier in California, which is more consistent, but certainly for Europe. Vintage charts tend to reward immediate accessibility. They tend to equate immediate accessibility with a great vintage, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous. A great vintage is whatever a great vintage is. It should be age-worthy Ageful. in Burgundy and, and Piedmont. It should be something else other places. But you know, basically, if you have a high alcohol, lower acid, lower tannin, sweet, fruity vintage, that's great. 100 points. I'm 100 points on that. And, and uh, nothing else seems to matter. So if it's accessible as soon as it's sold, that seems to be the big, big thing. That's the big, I think that's the big thing. And also I think that, in all honesty, most people who are creating vintage charts are in cahoots with the wine industry to a certain extent. And they see their job not as um, advocating for the consumer, but helping the industry sell wine. Mm-hmm. And now you've kind of uh, been traveling increasingly frequently, I yes. think, in terms of getting out of the New York market and not just to Italy, but to locations around the world. All over the place. Because every time I see you, you're usually coming or going from somewhere. That is correct. And so what what's the story elsewhere? Are there other areas of the world that we should really be looking at if we're looking for great value, but maybe we like the earthy flavors and high acid that we found in Italy? I think it's it's difficult. I mean, I just I was in Brazil this year. Brazil has a, a, a historic wine industry that I wasn't aware of, uh, well over 100 years old. Um, their wines, the winemaking is okay. Mm-hmm. The viticulture needs work, but the wines, the fruit that they get are relatively high. The climate resembles Oregon. The soils are very poor. Um, the fruit that they get tends to be high acid, slightly austere tannins, and the soil uh, under the top soil is almost pure basalt. So these wines have a, a very a minerally, it's a slightly ashy mineral quality, <clears throat> which I, I like very much. I liked the wines very much. They're not going to be particularly inexpensive because they're not very easy to farm. Uh, they're difficult like to get. It's like high altitude, right? High, and, high and it's just—it's not necessarily high, but they're all steep and craggy. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's really the Germans got to the region first. The Germans colonized all the arable lands. The Italians came second, actually from Trentino, ironically, most of them. Um, and they got pushed into the hills. And they're really di- – it's a difficult place to – to work and not a lot of people want to do the work there. So I think that that's an interesting place to look for um, a, a completely different flavor profile, unlike anything else in South America. Uh, I found that very interesting. In Chile, there are still people. I don't, one of the problems I have with modern wines, and it's a, just a big catch all phrase, but the, the Bordeaux varieties in particular, people th- seem to think that pyrazines 
green bell pepper herbal aromas flavors are a fault so if it tastes like a green vegetable that's a bad thing that's a bad thing and i don't understand that because a lot of people seem to like green vegetables Mm -hmm. um especially with a with a steak i don't want i don't want a bowl of cherries with my steak i'd rather have a, a blackberry covered in herbs with my steak and there are still some great carmenaires out there um that have that slightly peppery green quality uh, I dig totally. I mean, that's what I want from my Bordeaux varietals. I don't want a blueberry shake. Um, and then I think uh, I think New Zealand's got a lot of promise as well. They've they've made a name for themselves with uh, over the top uh, Sauvignon Blancs. Mm-hmm. They are now making a second name with themselves for kind of a simple in a way, very fruity, well balanced Pinot Noirs. But there's a lot of exploration going on in New Zealand, uh, different terroirs, and I think you're going to see interesting wines coming from New Zealand, uh, Syrah, Pinot Noir, that are not as um, commercially styled. So you can't, I can't fault them. Uh, their wine industry is really young. It was built very quickly on the backs of commercial-style wines. And now they have some breathing room and a need to diversify. I think we'll find that their wines are, are going to start revealing more about New Zealand's terroir than some of the wines that they've already produced. Speaking about commerce, um, the Asia question seems to be so looming over prices for wines, at least fine wines, uh, globally. W- what's your take on the future of China and how it's going to affect things like Barolo and how much they cost? I think I think it's going to be very interesting. I think it's all you know, it's all guesses at this point. But we've seen what happened when China became when a very tiny segment of the nation Chinese wine market became interested in Lafitte. Prices doubled and tripled. They've certainly moved on to Burgundy, where they're driving prices up. Um, I think Barolo's not really felt it yet, although I know that producers have started to ship to China. I think long term, the Chinese are obviously going to they have a lot of wealth. They're going to consume a lot of wine, and they're going to absolutely seek out the the best of the best, the low production wines where even a small uptick in demand can have profound effects on pricing. And I think we've started to see that at the very top in Barolo. If you look at Monfortino and Jacosa red labels, those prices have taken a jump up. They sort of settled in at a new a new a new new, a new reality. And that's dragged up the a handful of wines that other producers would like to price at that level. And if those prices are accepted by China, I think we'll see a whole other level of wines, the Cascina Franches, the Moprivatos, being dragged up from about 100 bucks a bottle to who knows where, to, to outside the means of most people. So I think, I think it's going to have a profound effect in the next two decades on the pricing of the best wines. Um, now there's a lot of wine out there underneath that. And where that goes, I, I have no idea. It really depends. I think China's going to develop their own Robert Parker. I think the Chinese have been... It's going to be an internal voice. I think so. I think they've been very dependent. They've obviously been very dependent on um, external voices. Mm-hmm. And they've been, Advisors, sommeliers, yes. consultants. And, and, uh, and critics, wine critics. You know, the, the wine critics have made... I shouldn't say the wine critics. Several wine critics have made huge investments in China. Mm-hmm. They've gone there, seminars. They want to get their name out. And I think the Chinese have responded because the Chinese have no culture of wine. And they look to, uh, to wine writers as experts. But I think they're going to develop internal voices. And the, their palates have to be different than ours. I think one of the interesting things that when you taste wine with people from other parts of the world, they use other descriptors. They, they've had life experiences that we haven't had, and their fundamental palates are different. So I think that 
the Chinese will always value the the prizes, the the DRCs and things like that, because that's just part of the collecting culture. But I think that we're going to see an internal voice establish him or herself and really move the needle for Chinese preferences on wine. And it may not be Barolo and, and Bordeaux. It may be Malbec and New Zealand Pinot Noir. I don't know where it's going to end up. But wherever it ends up, the Chinese market will suck up a, a lot of wine and really change fundamentally the pricing structure for those wines. Because we saw the English affect Bordeaux. We saw the Dutch affect Bordeaux. Uh, we've seen Americans affect Italian wine, Tuscan wine. Absolutely. And, and we're going to see it again, and it's going to be the next uh, wave of the feedback of the market. It's going to say, hey, we like this, and then you think the producers will produce more of that. Basically. I think so, yeah, basically. Are, are we living, I mean, you said a couple of decades for Barolo price increases, but are we living under a ticking time bomb called 2010 vintage? Is that going to be the 01 for Germany or the 09 for Beaujolais, where all of a sudden so many more people um, kind of get behind the bandwagon of 2010, which will be released in two years? I don't know. I, I think it's, I, I don't think so. It depends. I mean, I haven't had 2010 Barolos. Uh, I think that the, the, the vintages that really changed things were 2000, 2007 had the potential to those easy, almost new world style vintages. Those are what's what, your take on 07? You think uh, it's I, an easy new world vintage? I think it's uh, I think it's easy to drink and easy to understand. I don't think it's particularly good. There are exceptions, of course. There are always going to be exceptions because it was lauded quite highly in some quarters. It, it and I was yeah, I think the the critical assessment of the vintage had no very little connection to the reality of the vintage and i think that one of the things that's going almost to, a shocking thing to say really yeah that, like the how it was received has nothing to do with what it was no i think 80 percent of those wines were good i mean they certainly were, were better than average but they were undistinguished they were good wines but they a lot of them had a fault that should really ratchet them down to a good to very good rating as a vintage. And it was rated as an exceptional vintage. And the alcohols on many of the wines are absolutely blistering. Uh, the tannins are green in many of the wines. The acids are low. I mean, it was just a smorgasbord of, <clears throat> of mistakes and faults that just for the, the inconsistency, the vintage had to be rated down. But I think that what's going to happen to a lot of people is every vintage is great now. It's every, everything's great. Great, 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 great. Barolo's become the Special Olympics of the wine world. And I think that people who buy these wines and start drinking them down the road are going to say, you know what, this is not great. I don't know right. what's going on here. There are some great vintages. There are lots of very good vintages. And the flip side is a lot of the very good vintages are downplayed on release. 2005 is, I think, a, a very good vintage. It was, it, I, I personally, as a vintage, think it's better than 07 for consistency um, and for what I'm looking for in, in Barolo. Um, but I think that the whole vintage chart, vintage assessment angle of wine criticism is ultimately going to bite Barolo in the ass, bite a lot of regions in the ass. I mean, uh, Burgundy, I think, is a great example. 09, 010, qualitatively, can you call them equivalent? All right, I mean, I'll give you that. They're both great vintages in a way. But, man, are they different. And if you're selling $100 bottles... You really need to understand, or I'm sorry, if you're buying $100 bottles, you really need to understand the style of the vintage as much as the quality of the vintage. And you know, we're, we're just being sold a quality bill of goods at this point. So you do have a little bit of uh, background on the sell side. You were 
you know, a, a work for Aster Absolutely. for a, a long, a long period of time. Um, what's it like in retail versus, say, coming up on the restaurant side? I mean, what what does retail bring to a wine education? To my wine education, yeah. uh, retail retail is. Uh, I miss retail. Uh, it, it's absolutely fascinating and retail and in, in selling wine in a restaurant, which I did. At a, at a medium to low level, you're really in control. People are looking for you, for your input. You understand the menu. You know the list. Uh, at retail, you're not in control. The consumer is in total control. Um, they have choices. They can walk out. Uh, but what I found absolutely awesome about retail was developing relationships and understanding. You really learn what the layman means when they speak about wine. Which, which is another language to me sometimes. You know, I don't get it. I want it fruity but dry. You know, you don't. You really want it fruity but a little sweet. I, I get that now. Um, but developing relationships with people and being the one to influence their palate and to move them from that fruity but dry but not dry wine to something that actually is fruity but dry and then then maybe less fruity and and uh, dry and then maybe something a little weird and funky. I think that that. Um, it really helps you understand how people can progress through wine. I think the people who are bitten by the wine bug, like you and I, we have a different openness, willingness to try things, desire for different stuff. And even if it's defective, I know that I'm guessing that both of us can sit down and totally enjoy wines, which a, a winemaker would come over and say, oh, that's defective. That, you know, Nobody should should have sold that. Are you commenting on the wine I just served you? Absolutely. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> um, but you learn, you learn uh, so much about regular people's palates and their ability to talk about wine. And, uh, you, you know that that's I think the most fascinating thing from retail. Obviously, you learn a lot about the the backside of the business. Some of it which is interesting, some of it which is disappointing. Um, but it's part of the business. It's a, it's a business. It's like any other business. And I think that gets glossed over a lot. There's a lot of romanticism about the wine industry, but at the end of the day, everybody involved in the wine industry is trying to make a buck. So in the '80s and in the '90s, we saw critical voices really driving the wine market. It felt like uh, retailers were sort of going along with them to the most point, sommiers as well. And we saw a phenomenal price escalation, like phenomenal, multiple times. Um, but now it feels like retailers are reasserting themselves and sommiers are, are be having larger influence on consumers in a broad sense. People want to hear more from these people. And almost like the critical voice has really um, – gotten uh clouded or there's so many more of them or that's there's one less uh there's not a major voice and i i wonder if that might have something to do with uh, how expensive wine is now and the distance between the critical voice which isn't purchasing the wine and the retailer and the sommelier who's working directly looking at somebody in the eye and then knowing that eighty dollars means one thing and a hundred dollars means another thing do you think that that may be part of the reason why we're seeing sommiers and retailers uh, reemerge as a as a big voice because the the multiples of price just got so large? I think that's a really astute observation, but I think fundamentally, it's a, there's a different motivating factor. I think that you know our wine culture is relatively young, and it's the, I think the people who started following those critics and writers in the eighties and the nineties have had enough time to realize that 
a lot of them don't know what they're talking about. These wines that were going to age for 20 years have fallen apart after five, and this great vintage is not so great. So I think there's a whole group of people who have said, hey, wait a minute. These guys don't know any more than anybody else. I should be li listening to other voices. And especially, I mean, if a bottle's 20 bucks, for a lot of people, it's a lot of money. But if a bottle's 20 bucks, who cares? I'll take a flyer on almost anything to learn something about wine. If a bottle's 70 bucks, I want to be damn sure that I know what I'm getting, especially if I'm going to put it in the cellar for 10 years and not taste it right away. So I, th I think there's a, I think there's a huge number of people who have just given up faith, blind faith in the self-appointed, basically self-appointed wine experts out there in the media. I think that's been a big driving factor. And I also think the internet, everything is so much easier to research that people are more comfortable uh, pronouncing names and, and ordering weird things because they know that they've, they've, they've experienced more. The world is not Cabernet, Chablis and, 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 and Bordeaux today. There's a lot of other stuff out there. And I think when people get uh, a taste of it, they just want more. And, you know, some of the great critics and there are, there are great critics have their expertise. And let's say your expertise is Bordeaux. I'm not sure I'm going to trust you about Greek wines if your expertise is Bordeaux. And I think a lot of consumers are like, you know, the, the, this sommelier or this wine salesperson who's got the bottle in their hands and is actually describing the wine probably knows more about this wine than some critic who might have tasted it in a big tasting with the producer a year and a half ago. Are we seeing the wine world increasingly niche? Are we seeing small pockets of authority and influence and uh, knowledge of regions emerge? I, I think absolutely, especially at the upper end. It's it's. It's becoming completely niche. Again, so when someone's spending big money on champagne or burgundy or Bordeaux, they're going to the guru of I think that so. subject. I think so. I mean, it's it, it's also it's become so much more complex. So many more wines have become expensive. There's so many new small producers in champagne and in in other regions that have come on the market. There's no way a critic can cover it all. I mean, I recently. Um, was moving some books around, and I happened to have Par Robert Parker's first book, and I leafed through it. And it's a it's a great historical document, and his reviews were pretty awesome back then. I, I have to say, it was a, it's a great read. But you look through the sections, and sure, Bordeaux is really well covered because the classified growths are all there. But once you get outside of Bordeaux, and maybe and that's it. I mean, once you get outside of Bordeaux. Coverage is, is, you know, what, 40 producers in some regions, 30 in others. And these are regions which today have 400 producers in the U.S. market. So he, while he could do a good job of covering everything back in the mid-80s, today you'd be a fool to think that you could cover everything. I remember speaking of books that you said at one point you had pretty much read everything there was to read. Absolutely. And then one day the, the Internet happened and one day wine culture got so big that more books were being published every year. What's what's the difference between starting out when you started out and starting out now with the world of online? And I think you should be able to especially talk a little bit about the online part of it. I should. I don't know if I will, but I should. <laughs> um, I think it's it's uh, it's so fundamentally different. I do say, and this is 100% true, that probably when I was 23, as a percentage of what was available to be known, I knew much more then than I do today. Uh, I scoured used bookstores. I had, I don't know how many, 
five dozen wine books and I had read them all repeatedly. I had developed really good relationships with people in wine shops like George and Watermill. Um, like names, names are escaping me now, but Lou at Gold Star. And these, these are people who had expertise, you know, very narrow focus, like, like today, but the, their world was smaller and you would learn so much. And I think also having a young kid come into your store, say, Hey, I've read about this obscure producer that you have on the shelf, and I would like you to tell me more about it. it. Was flattering for these guys, and they really saw an opportunity to 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 share what they knew. Today, I think that there's just there's just too much information to even begin to understand everything. Here's another. I mean, this is the way I started my wine education. I bought the same from the same region for six to twelve months. That's the way I decided to learn. I was going to learn all about Burgundy by buying all the bottles of Burgundy. I was going to learn all about Bordeaux by buying all the bottles of Bordeaux. You can't do that today. And here's uh, another problem is I bought DRC, Latash, I think, for 50 bucks a bottle. This is I was in college. I was getting paid $6, I think, an hour to do prep work for a caterer so I could save money for two weeks and I actually bought DRC. And today, if you're making eight bucks an hour or ten bucks an hour, I don't know how you, know, you have to yeah. save for a month to buy a bottle. Well, um, I mean, feasibly with rent and everything, you could be saving for two save, years. Yes, you to, can see you can, buy a bottle. Yes, so you should buy other things. So the whole wine world has moved up to a level where young people getting involved in wine today are at a tremendous disadvantage, and it's really in terms of the classics. Yeah, but they have so much more Muscadet. They have so much more they wine do. from they do. the Canary Islands. But I think that. You need to you need to taste and understand some of the classics to really understand other regions. I mean, Muscadet is a little different, but if you want to if you want to understand the Bordeaux varieties from South America, you really need to have some basis for comparison to Bordeaux, and it should be good Bordeaux. I mean, I have been saying for several years, and this is the power of the internet, that it's it's our responsibility. There's <clears throat> got to be a, a philanthropic aspect right. to, to wine in the same way that there's art museums yes i can go i can see a picasso i yes. can see a rembrandt i don't own them there are certain hours i can go but limits, I, it can yeah. be shared with me yes however wine a consumable good may be a little more difficult but it's it's up to the it's it's the responsibility of the people who got involved in wine 20 or 30 years ago and who have amassed sellers to share that wine again you know, is it the responsibility of the producer as well i mean should some wine be set aside the same wine for less money to be offered to people that are in, I don't know, in education? I don't know if you offer it to people for less money, but certainly educational seminars, tastings, things like that. If producers want people to understand their wines in the future, then I would totally agree. Yes, you have to introduce those wines to the next generation of, of wine writers, sommeliers, wine buyers. Otherwise, you will get passed over. You will get lost. And you may Do you have think to... that's happened? Do you think certain producers that are have been accepted as great have been lost by a younger generation, like a lost generation of people who understand the wines um, or care about the wine? I'm not sure. I don't know. There's so many other factors. But as an example, I'm going to throw, I'll throw a Gaia, who was definitely a hot brand. Nothing hotter. Nothing hotter. In 10, 15 years 90s. ago. Yeah. yeah. And today, I believe that Gaia, Gaia's sales are generally generated primarily who people 
by people who just want to put them on the list and then don't sell. Mm-hmm. Just so, in case. Just in case. And yeah. it looks good, too. There's right? a high baller coming in. And yeah, I got a little vertical of guy going on. It looks good on the list. I get the feeling that there's a lot of stock of this wine, like in general. I like, believe so. Uh, with this label, the just the Gaia label. It does, it, it does not seem to disappear from the marketplace ever. Yeah. It always seems like there's a little bit available, which is curse of death at the high-end fine wine. Yes, you want to be 500 case production. So maybe that's a little surprising. What else over the course of a couple decades has really surprised you about the wine world? What do you turn around and go, man, didn't see that one coming? Um, Some of the things that surprised me are the price stability of certain regions and that's sort of changing in the past maybe two years. But Alsatian wines were more expensive yeah. In relative terms, 20 years ago That's than right. today, they, right. they've really cratered. Um, I think that I didn't expect the Brunello scandal. Mm-hmm. And I, from, seemed like an open secret, though. Seemed it was like, no secret. It was, yeah. it was out there. And I think that, I think a lot of people didn't think it was going to be a big scandal. It wasn't going to be a big deal, including producers. Yes. I'm yeah. speaking particularly about the producers. And I think it's been a big deal. Yeah. You know, prices have dropped. The wines are under scrutiny. I mean, that's a fascinating scandal because Suckling basically established a certain style of Brunello as being so there was great. A, a wine critic who said, "Hey, this is good. This is great Brunello." Except and there wasn't. To imitate that style, you feel that other people blended in grapes from oh, native to the region. Absolutely, there's a lot of Merlot that got snuck in there, um, and you know that was much to the consternation of the traditional Brunello producers in Italy, who said, "This is insane. That that, that wine doesn't even taste like Brunello. What are you doing?" Um, so I, I didn't expect that scandal. I didn't expect that scandal to have the effect that it had. I didn't expect the outcome today to be a lot. I think there are a lot more producers moving towards a very classical Sangiovese. Who's saying, Bru- yes, Sangiovese. Yeah. I would never use anything but. Yeah. Well, you're not allowed to, so you shouldn't. Right. But the wines taste like it. They're not, they're not, they're, they're leaner, earthier. So who dimed out the Brunello guys? I mean, why did that happen? I think it was, uh, I think that ultimately it was driven by taxation. Oh, yeah? How yeah. does that, how, please explain. I don't know the, the intricate details, but evidently, um, you know, you couldn't produce Merlot to add to Brunello. Mm-hmm. So the producers of Brunello who were, blending in Merlot were not declaring the thousands, tens of thousands of right. liters of Merlot that they were producing. Well, there is that other appellation where you can use Sant'Atimo. Yeah. yeah. But they weren't declaring it at all. Right. This is my understanding. The biggest producer produced tens of thousands of liters of Merlot every year illegally, um, didn't declare, didn't pay taxes on it, which really... Oh, they weren't paying taxes on it because they weren't declaring it. Exactly. And then all of a sudden it's 10,000 liters and that's a lot of money in taxes. Yes. Okay. Now it all makes sense. I think that, See, that... I didn't know that. That was, I think, the... Uh, the final inducement because the government didn't want to know right the wine part of it the was government. selling and they're like hey this is great for the economy exactly and i'm cool with it it lifts all the taxes yes understood what might happen next what, what what scandals and open secrets are around the corner um i don't know if it's a scandal but certainly an open secret that a lot of wine that's considered great is pretty heavily manipulated mm-hmm. a lot of additives at the winery at the winery a lot of additives now, i'm not i'm not too against to uh, acid adjustments in wine. I think fundamentally you leave them. I'm a really big fan of wines that reflect their growing season. Mm-hmm. And I'm very forgiving if the tannins aren't fully ripe. So or, one year it's like this, next year it's like that. I mean, hey, I, I don't yeah. want I don't want wine 
to taste the same every year. Mm-hmm. If I did, I would buy $10 wine. That's their goal. And I applaud producers who can do that. I mean, that's really a challenge. And that, that requires some manipulation. But I think that we have a lower standard for wines that are 10 bucks a bottle, say. But we're looking at wines that are, say, $100 a bottle. And they have mega purple added to them and powdered tannins and they're deacidified and they're reverse osmosis. I mean, it's like they're baking a cake instead of making wine. <clears throat> and it's, uh, I think there's going to be a big backlash. There's certainly uh, a, a movement afloat to get labeling requirements for wine, which I don't think is going to happen. It'll happen piecemeal, I think. Um, but just the increasing awareness that that's breeding, people are saying, wait a minute, I'm paying a hundred bucks and I'm getting something that's been added to and stripped away and fooled around with. I'm not sure I want that. I, I think that's going to sort of explode on the scene. So the, the idea of the pastoral guy out there in an in idyllic vineyard um, may not be the reality of what you see on the shelf, and yeah. that will disturb people. That's a fact. I mean, it's a very a very good way to put it because a lot of the movement, um, a lot of the interest in wine that comes from younger people today is an effort to find authentic wines. They want that that support the farmer direct from the land connection to something that they don't have anymore. And I think a lot of people are getting it through wine. And when I mean, a lot of wineries and a lot of winemakers promote that image. But when the curtains pulled back and people realize that this is an industrial product made on a corporate scale, even if the, the volumes are very low, the, the, the thinking is bottom line driven and, and they're, they're making a, a wine to a model not trying to express the the typicity of the soil or the weather, but to try to get a ninety five point wine, I think that there's going to be a big backlash there. So that's a little bit about manipulation on the winery side. What about manipulation in a forage bottle? How has that affected the fine wine market? Uh, I think it's it's definitely it's interesting because I don't think it's done had much of a, an effect in China. China seems to be steaming along. Prices are lower than they Absorbing were. Maybe it. yeah. Uh, I think they're ignoring it. I don't think mm-hmm. it's. I frankly don't think it's as important to them. I think that the the perfect bottle is possibly more important to them. I mean, the, the aesthetic consideration of wine has always baffled me because ultimately, uh, if you get a bottle of wine and the label's tattered, um, a, a bottle of old wine, the label is tattered. There's some corrosion on the capsule. These are signs to me that the wine has been kept at a humidity that would help the cork stay elastic. It's a good thing. Right. That's what you're looking for. That's what I'm looking for. Yet it lowers the price of the wine. And from what I've heard, China in particular is all about perfect labels, everything perfect. Oh, well, if they're forged labels, I suppose they would probably be perfect. Well, some forgers are getting better. Well, at least it's new. It's a newer label. It is. Um, So I think that that other emerging markets are absorbing some of the – um, wine that's not being sold because of this this scandal. So if it doesn't make it in the U.S. market, someone ships it yeah, off to China, to, where absolutely. there's a, someone who will buy absolutely. it without a question. But but that's another. I mean, that only I was going to say really only affects it, the the high end of the market. There's been a fair amount of forged low end wine. With all due respect, I'm not sure the people who are buying that wine care whether it's real yellowtail or fake yellowtail. I, I think it's a lot easier to forge that low-end wine. Uh, the high-end wine, I mean, it, this is this has not been a secret. Again, this has been um, a lot of people in the wine industry not reporting. I was going to say suppressing. I'm not sure they were suppressing 
the fact that this was occurring, but they certainly weren't, weren't talking about it in a loud voice. And there are a couple of companies who've really been behind a disproportionate amount of the counterfeits and dubious bottles that have come on the market, at least here. I mean, I'm familiar with the New York market, at least here in New York. And it was pretty much open secret that, you know, if you're buying old wine from these people, maybe there's a 50, 50 chance that it's old wine. So, so keep that in mind. But I think it's, I think it's had a, a, a profound effect on, uh, collector to collector sales. Cause I think I, I've seen a lot of people who are, who have a, whose opinion of the auction markets have really plummeted. They don't trust auctioneers anymore. So you're saying collector to collector has gotten a lot bigger because people yes. aren't going through the auction house. Yes. But then, so who sits in the middle and says, well, that's a real bottle? The collectors. I mean, yeah. you know, you have so to it's, know. You, you're, it's, it, it, it's, uh, your own hazard. You buy at your own risk. Yeah. But it's, it's collector. Like, you know, I think we're going to, I, I believe that in the next several years, it's probably, it's, I'm sure it's out there already, but I believe that we're going to have a sort of a collector rating website. It's probably going to be private. You might have to pay to play, but it's going to be like a Yelp for wine collectors. Okay. So about complaints, but is it really possible to put together a forgery database? Because aren't you just giving the tools to the guys uh, in the black be, hats? This, this would be not about the wines. This would be okay. about the people who you're dealing with. Oh, I see. This, you know, this guy did this to me. Yes, that kind of thing. This guy, so kind of like you, like, kind of yeah, like what you're saying. You're, you're saying this guy's above board, has receipts for all his wines, great storage. Right. But didn't we hear those things about some of the people who ended up being some of the biggest forgers? Absolutely, but we, but we heard them from their friends. The, yeah, yeah, consider the source, I guess. I mean, it was a big. It, we have seen the tip of the iceberg, mm-hmm. but there is. You a, think there's a lot more? On there's the a lot of collusion. How do you? I mean, one Indonesian kid or whatever Chinese Indonesian kid cannot perpetrate fraud on this scale without assistance from people and decisive positions, either colluding actively or passively in that they, they vouched for wines that they shouldn't have vouched for. There certainly were tons of wine brought to auction that couldn't have passed muster. So has it come about that because it's so hard to have the resources to buy these kind of wines that in fact makes them easier to fake because in fact no one's tried them or very few people have tried them. And well, they've tried the off. fake ones. Right. <laughs> We've got, we have a fantastic resource of fake tasting notes out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, does that corrupt the thing? Do, do then somebody, does somebody look back and then think to themselves, gee, I wonder if that wine I tasted 10 years ago that I kind of founded my knowledge of a subject on if, if that was a real bottle. I, I, oh, I think, I hope people are saying that to themselves because mm-hmm. there certainly has, and I think 10 years is probably a good window. I'm not sure wide scale counterfeiting of wine is older than 10 years. I mean, mm-hmm. there's plenty of, you know, there's a hardy Rodenstock bottles, but that was, those are real collectors wines. I'm talking about, there's a lot of counterfeit wine in the say hundred to $400 bottle range, I believe. Um, and that is, it's still within the means of many collectors. It's not the highest level. Because in a way, that's easier to fake. Because yeah. if you show up with three cases of it, it's not like, how can you have three cases? It's yes. just not that They're much. They produce two. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I guess one more question, just kind of hitting closer to home. Is Barolo a target for fake wine? Absolutely. I mean, Because uh, that hasn't really been talked about much. Or, uh, do you think that, you know, we're going to... I've bought... Um, at least four lots of counterfeit Barolo. I see. 
Jacosa, Red Label, Monfortino from Giacomo Conterno, and two different vintages of one Barolo and one Cascina Francia from Giacomo Conterno. So, so all end, super high-end blue chips. Yes. You're saying that there's a danger. There is a danger. The the the, the least offensive one was uh, label switching, where they put 1990 labels on a, on 1993 wine, which is, you know... A, a, 93 Cascina Francia is really good. <laughs> yeah, but it was uh, when it was closed out was what it was, like right. 35 bucks a bottle. It was or Mont, was it Mont Privato? Because that was especially closed out in '93. No, this okay. was this was uh, Cascina Francia. Was it Cascina Francia? No, Cascina Francia was as well. '93, '94 in Chicago, they closed it out. Oh. So there's a lot of that. And then the the '58 Montfortino, which had a not terrible, probably Languedoc wine in the bottle that had been inserted <laughs> uh, with a syringe. Mm-hmm. After I pulled the cork, you could see that there had been a hole drilled. Oh, there in the was cork. a hole. Yeah. So. How do you go about protecting yourself? If you're I don't buy those wines anymore. Yeah. Oh, you don't buy the blue chips anymore. They're over your hundred dollar limit. They're over my hundred dollar limit. I have bought them. I have. I'm satisfied with what I have in my cellar. Um, it's no longer between provenance issues, the storage of the bottles, counterfeiting, and other things. I think that my your my success rate um, with those older wines is, for argument's sake, about sixty six percent. Really? Yeah, I think so. So you're saying, though, 33, 34, not so good. Not so bueno. Yes. Which, and that's beyond oxidation, poor storage. That's fake. That's fake. Yes, that's definitely fake. And, you know, I think there's different kinds of fake. Mm-hmm. There there are some wines that, well, I, I, there's some wines that were probably topped up, refreshed at the winery, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's in a way, a fake wine, too. It's not mm-hmm. telling. It's like at least me, something you want to know. Yeah. Yeah, please. Please tell me that. Um, so there's that issue. Um, but, but that, that adds up. If I'm spending a hundred bucks, that means, you know, it's really 150 bucks per pristine bottle. Um, so I've, I've sort of made up my mind. And again, there are always going to be exceptions, but, uh, I, I don't need to buy old wines. You want to protect yourself, buy twice as much young wine as you think you're going to need and sell From it. From the source. Yeah. And sell it. And I know that's, that's a harsh, comment people are going to say uh, yeah so you've got a cellar full of this stuff so it's easy for you to say right. it is easy for me to say but that ultimately is the best way to do it and and again this is something that i've said for years and it was self-serving at one point learn your get to know your retailers find the trusted retailer the retailer retailers in general are seen as sort of the enemy here because they take your money make money off of a sale but there are some fabulous retailers in this country. And if you get to know them, they're the ones who are going to be able to either stand behind the wine they sell or find you great deals on aged wines. We saw a moment in the late 90s and in, in the turn of the decade where I felt like sommelier culture uh, was huge and there was a lot of um, kind of respect and desire to, to drink expensive bottles in a restaurant. I, uh, my own personal feeling is that maybe that's declined a little bit as, as collectors like yourself have their own sellers to drink down. What's your comment on that? And do you think there's been a change in how people approach a restaurant wine list? I think, I definitely, I think part of it's the economy. I mean, I think that what, if the economy comes storming back, you'll have a, a, a new generation of young, 30 year old men who are going to want to blow a thousand bucks on a bottle. So I think that's sort of, uh, the underlying cause, but then I th- agree 100%. I think it's cyclical. Those people are going to say, 
you know, hey, I can buy this wine myself. I can sell it. I can drink it at home. And 20 years later, those young people are now either eating at home and drinking their wine, maybe BYOBing with these fabulous bottles, maybe just buying less expensive wines at restaurants because they know they have the wine at home. And I think that we've just, the economy, the way it's been, we've sort of missed out uh, on developing the, maybe it's an eight-year cycle. We sort of missed out on developing the next layer. And so I can definitely see where, where you have less demand for a fine wine. But I think I think in in total in the future, there should be more demand eventually because I think that uh, again it comes it comes with a trust issue. I don't buy expensive wine at restaurants except maybe I, I do again exception very rarely. But the reason I do is it's the only place where I can say uh uh-uh, uh right you can send it back. I want another bottle. There's something right. wrong with this. So restaurants for a significant market they eliminate that thirty thirty three percent underperforming. Uh, part of my wine purchasing a- equation. So, you know, that that's something that becomes more and more attractive as the price gets higher. Because as the price gets higher, I think the percentage of perfect bottles gets lower. There's more incentives to fake the bottles. There's more incentives to sell stuff that, to represent stuff that has been mistreated because you're losing more money by not selling it. So the real high end of the market, I think it's very dangerous to buy back vintage stuff. So having that guarantee of somebody standing behind it serves as an inducement to me at least to to buy an expensive bottle once in a while the other day i was my anniversary actually we, we, congratulations we, oh thanks we opened up a bottle of uh you know, by any means expensive champagne that had been given to me as a gift and uh old and i opened it up and tasted it and it was a perfect bottle perfect it's <laughs> awesome when that happens and so then that's what i thought and then I thought, why do I think that? Why am I so surprised that a bottle is pristine when it's been aged for 22 years? Um, does it seem to you, because when I think back to when I first started, I felt like the hit rate was better. Like you would open up a bottle and it would be pristine most of the time. You mm-hmm. felt like, but now I feel like I'm a little surprised actually when there's no heat damage. I can. I think that the 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 value of the wine is brought a lot of wine into the marketplace from sources it shouldn't have come from. I know, for example, that... So people are more willing to say, yeah, okay, well, that label's going to sell for big money. Yeah, I'm so going to make money off of that. Even though I can see that this room is quite hot, I'm going to buy it for me. There's been, I think that um, Spanish wine has... There's been a lot of old Spanish wine purchased from restaurants in Spain that you know, they didn't have air conditioning. They put them in the basement if we we're lucky. That have come on the market. There's a lot of old, crappy Spanish wine because the prices are such that uh, now, now's the time to bring them out because well. they've never been as high. Yeah. yeah, and I, I'm again. I go back to the the wines I bought, the old California wines I bought that store in Watermill that were stored in the basement that were picked up at the source. Many of the bottles are still in my cellar. Not that many, but a, ton, a significant number. And those are wines. Uh, that's my baseline for provenance and for pristine wines um i can't tell you how many wines california wines of a similar vintage i've purchased almost none of them perform at that level you know one when you re when you now try to replenish your stock same vintage same wine you've had the wine before and it just doesn't deliver the same goods yeah or i you know i'll open two bottles one from that purchase in the mid 80s and one that maybe i purchased five years later or 10 years later from a different source keeping track yeah, that. absolutely. They all have dots on them. Hmm. They came with dots. I left the dots on. Um, but, uh, you know, wine until uh, arbitrarily 1995, let's say, it was, you know, it was, it was wine. 
It yeah. was not worth that much, and it wasn't treated that well. You know, we've had we have famous stories, Crossroads, a wine shop here in New York, which had fantastic wines available, famously cooked their wines, and you know, that was probably, as far as selection goes, one of the top two or three stores in Manhattan in the eighties, and they cooked a shit ton of their wine. They didn't care about it. So you know, I think a lot of wine just as has been mistreated. I think a lot of wine today is treated better than ever though. I think through the supply chain, there's an understanding It breaks down, at least here in New York, it breaks down when it gets delivered to restaurants and, and retail shops and unrefrigerated vehicles and sits on sidewalks in the summertime and things like that. Greg Del Pai is someone I always get to learn a lot when I taste with, someone I always get to learn a lot when I speak with. Thank you for sharing your views today. Thank you very much, uh, Levy. It's always a pleasure. Usually we're just kicking back after a busy day of uh, well, we need more of those. tasting wine Yeah, on the, on the patio in some, in some Italian town. Yeah, that's right. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.